Open up your Bible with me this morning. And uh, where I'm going to have you go, first of all, is 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want you to head there. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I am somewhat of a news junkie, okay? I'm a little weird that way, maybe a little nerdy. Um, you know how some people are into football or basketball or like Major League Baseball and all that kind of stuff, and they walk home and turn on ESPN? Well, that's not me, okay? That's just not really my thing. I like the news. I like world news. I like American politics. I like the weird stories of things that are going on in the world. That's just me, okay? Real, like Brock and I like to sit around and talk about history authors that we enjoy. Yeah, that's a joke if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but anyway, I enjoy the news. It's something I enjoy. Maybe you're there. One of the things, though, you've got to fight against if you're a person that watches a lot of news, you know, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, whatever it is that you watch, one of the things you've got, to, what you've got to guard against when you see what's going on in the world, whether you're a news junkie or not, when you see what's happening in the world, it's very easy to grow pretty discouraged, is it not? And you can get to the place where you're like, man, what is going on in this world? I want nothing to do with it. You can feel that way a lot. When you see what's happening in the other countries of the world, when you see what's happening in our own country, when, when you see the violence that's happening, when you see things that, people that are being hurt and damaged. And for that matter, maybe you don't watch any news, but when you look at your own life, many of us are walking through things, even right now maybe, and you're like, man, I'm not sure I can get through another day. It just seems like every day something bad is happening. You might wonder, what's going on? And what kind of hope do we have? Well, I want to talk today about the hope that we, the hope that we all have. And the hope that I want to remind you about has nothing to do with a political leader. It has nothing to do with dealing with violence or with this kind of issue in our society. It has nothing to do with all the little details of your life coming together. Because believe me, even if all the little details that you're hoping to come together for tomorrow or next week or whatever it may be, even if they all fall into place, our problem is still going to be here. And our problem is multifaceted. One, we're sinners. Okay, that's a problem. And it rears its ugly head in a lot of ways. But even if you aren't doing wrong at one particular time, even if your own sinfulness isn't the problem, not only are we sinners, we're surrounded by people who are sinners. And we live in a sin-cursed world. And the reality of that is, we can do everything right. And people still get sick. And cars still break down. And jobs still get lost. And people still die. And marriages still fail. And children still break hearts. And so do dads. You see, God created us for this world. Yes. But then, Because of the sin of mankind, God placed a curse on this earth. say, well, why would God do that? Why would God place a curse on the earth? 
Because he knew that if it wasn't cursed, we wouldn't seek the greatest thing that we can seek, and that is him. I want to teach you a word today. I want to teach you a word. I'll put it up on the screen. Um, The word is Maranatha. Maybe you've heard that word before, maybe you haven't. I'll show you it in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I asked you to turn there and I didn't bother to do it yet. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I want to read a couple verses to you. And I want you to see that in the midst of this Bible passage, the author of this passage, who's a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is showing that life can be challenging. Not even can be, it will be. Life is challenging. But there is a hope for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I want to read verses 21 to the end. And in here I'm going to teach you a word. Paul writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. In other words, Paul's saying, man, this is personal. Nobody's typing this for me. Nobody's writing this down for me. I'm writing with my own hand. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Here's what he's saying. I know I have opponents. I know people who are going against the message of Christ. We are swimming upstream if you're living for Christ. If you are living for Christ, you are swimming upstream. And the world is coming against you. And Paul here is recognizing that. And he says, if people don't love God, let them be accursed. In other words, you know what? Let God deal with them. Let God, and sometimes it's just where you have to go. Sometimes there's nothing you can do with the problems that you have. There's no fix you can bring. You can't make your illness go away. You can't make the situation change. It's outside of your hands. And you just have to say, I'm going to let God deal with this. I'm going to let God deal with it. And that's what he says here. And then he says this. He actually says, the word. it's an Aramaic word. It's one of the few in your New Testament. And it's Maranatha. You want to say that with me? Ready? Maranatha. Here's what it means. Our Lord, or O Lord, come. This is a very emotional word. These are the words that somebody says when they are being broken down by life. It's a word packed full of emotion. It's a word of grit. It's, oh Lord, come, come. Because the Lord has promised, the Lord Jesus has promised that He's coming again. He's coming again. And folks, there are some things that are, that are so bad in our lives that no, no political movement, no ism, no political leader is going to fix it. Just like there are some things in your individual life that are so messed up now and so twisted that honestly, nobody can swoop in and fix it. There are some physical challenges that we may have that no doctor can come along and make it go away. They don't have a magic wand and poof, it's gone. It doesn't always happen. But I'm telling you something that's guaranteed. The Lord Jesus is going to return. And as you live your life on this cursed planet, with, as a sinner, surrounded by sinners, cursed by God because of sin, Believe me, you will begin to utter the cry, Maranatha, oh Lord, come. Let me give you just a snapshot of God's plan. 
Let me tell you what God plans. See, God created all humans for relationship with Him. But humans, as, as, a, as, a, as a creature, rebelled against God. And now the world is cursed. But God made a promise. He made several promises. We find the first one in, in Genesis chapter 3, where God promises that this curse is going to be broken. One day the curse will be broken. And then the Bible unfolds a whole series of promises. In Genesis 12, God promises that He is going to establish a kingdom. God is going to establish a kingdom now where everything will be right, where everything will be true and just, and there'll be no wrong, and there'll be no wickedness. There's a kingdom coming, God promised in Genesis chapter 12. And then in 2 Samuel 8, God made another promise. See, these promises unfold in the Bible. And God promised that in that kingdom, there'll be a king. And he'll be a perfect king. He'll be a loving king. He'll be a human king who's also God. Wow. That doesn't make any sense. He's called the Messiah, and he will come and rule. And God continued to unfold these promises. And listen to this one in Jeremiah 31. That kingdom, it will have residents, and they will be the children of God. And Jeremiah promises that in this kingdom there will be people who are redeemed by the king, who have been forgiven by the king, who know God personally as a friend. This kingdom will be filled by these residents. The children of God, the sons and daughters of God, who will be in the kingdom of God, worshiping the King, the Messiah of this kingdom. Great promises unfolded in the Word of God. And Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died as a sacrifice for sin, that that, that, that kingdom can be filled with God's children. And then Jesus ascended to be with the Father. He went into heaven. After being resurrected, He went into heaven. And now we're here. And we're waiting for this coming kingdom. And now we utter the cry, Maranatha, O Lord, come. And listen, He's coming again. Jesus Christ is going to come. Now, we can talk about some of the details, you know, about what's this dragon and what are these horsemen and all that. But listen, that, that's not really that important for us this morning. I just want you to know He's coming again. Jesus is coming again. And when He comes, He will come and He will bring in this, He will usher into this kingdom and we will reign with Him for all of eternity. Now, this is the, the, the great plan of God from Genesis through Revelation. From beginning to end, this is the plan of God. The amazing thing is it's laid out in great detail in a, in a little chapter in the middle of a great book of your Bible. It's in Isaiah chapter 53. Now I want you to turn there. We've been there for the last four weeks. We've been studying through this one chapter of Scripture, Isaiah 53. Isaiah is a pretty amazing book. 
Okay? You should read it sometime. It's got 66 books. The first 39 are all about the judgment of God on His people. God's people were meant to live for Him and they rebelled against Him. And so God said, if you want to rebel in love for you, in my love for you to try to teach you not to rebel against Me, I'm going to bring consequences into your life. This is what a loving father does. Believe me, I lived it a lot. I had four kids. As a loving father, they would walk up and they might touch the hot wood stove. And what does a dad do when a child reaches out for a wood stove? Stops them and swats their hand. That's right. I smack many hands. Because I'm trying to teach my children to do right. That's what a loving father does. First 39 chapters of Isaiah are about God's people rebelling against Him and God is going to correct them. 40 through 66 is all about God delivering His people. God's going to deliver His people. He's going to deliver them as a nation, as a kingdom. He's going to deliver them into the future. But Isaiah 53 is talking about God delivering His people from their greatest ill. The greatest problem you have. The greatest problem that I have. The greatest problem that all of us have. It's not your lack. It's not the lack of a car, the lack of a job, the lack of education, the lack of food, the lack of housing, the lack of anything else. That is not what you lack that causes this great need. It is what we have done, sin, and our need for forgiveness. And Isaiah 53 has described that in detail. But what also Isaiah 53 shows us is what I call the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus. This is Jesus' first coming and this is Jesus' second coming. And let's see it here in verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Let me say this because I won't have a chance to say it anytime in the future, okay? This was written 740 years before Jesus came to earth. 740 years before Christ was born, Isaiah penned these words about the servant of God, about the Messiah who would come and do this great work. Seven centuries went by after this was written before the Messiah laid it out and lived it out perfectly. It's incredible what Isaiah 53 represents. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord, Yahweh. This is the name of God. Your Bible should say capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The name that God revealed about Himself to Moses at the burning bush. This is who I am. I am the relational God, Yahweh. It's me. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Who is Him? Him is the servant of God. Go all the way back to 52 verse 13. Three verses before the Isaiah 53 starts is really the first verse of this chapter. 52.13, Behold, my servant shall prosper. My servant. This is the Messiah of Christ. And verse 10, It is now the will of the Lord to crush His servant. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't make any logical sense. 
from our finite minds. He, being the Lord, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let me say something here before I go any further. There's something that you might have, you might have noticed, but let me point it out to you. In the middle of verse 10, there's a change. In the middle of verse 10, see, this is how you read the Bible. You look for things that change along the way, and there's a change in verse 10. Let me read it to you, and I'm going to emphasize on purpose some things, okay? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Do you see what has happened? The verb tenses in the middle of verse 10 go from past tense. He shall. This is, was the will of the Lord. He has put him to grief. These are past tense to now they are future tense. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Something has happened in the middle of verse 10. We have changed. We have changed. In the middle of verse 10, in the first half of verse 10, the author is speaking about what God is going to do to the Messiah. Going to crush him. Going to use him as a guilt offering. He's going to give his life. The, all of the previous 13 verses have all been in the past tense. God is going to do this. He has done this to the Messiah. But in the middle of verse 10, through the, through the rest of the chapter, it's all future. It's all future. It's now talking about what God is going to do. You see what has happened in the middle of verse 10? You know what happened? Maranatha happened in the middle of verse 10. Maranatha occurred. The servant of God has returned in the middle of verse 10. Now this was 700 years before Jesus came to earth. But now, it's 2,700 years later. And we are still waiting for Jesus to come. But this is going to tell us what He's going to do when He returns. Folks, Jesus could come back today. I don't know. He could come back this very day. In the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, that we won't know that it's coming. We won't anticipate it. It'll catch us like a thief. He will return. And when He turns, it will be very, very, very good for many. But it will be too late for most. If you're in Christ today, when He comes back again, it will be very, very good for you. It will be the glory of God. It will be what you are waiting for, what you are longing for, what you have been designed for will occur. And Isaiah here sees it. Can you feel the miracle of this? Isaiah is now writing down something that is going to happen at the very least 2,700 years later. And he speaks of the glory of Christ. Let me read verses 11 and 12, and then we'll break them down. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12 is confusing. I'll explain it to you in a minute. But it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What I want us to look at today as we, as we break this passage down, I want us to look at things from God's perspective. I want to look at things from God's perspective. And the first thing I want us to look at is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ from God's perspective. And what we will see is God's plan, the Lord's plan for, for us and for Himself through the cross. From God's perspective now, we're going to see the cross of Christ. And we're going to see His sovereign plan. And not only that, we're also going to see our forgiveness. Our forgiveness that we have because of God's sovereign plan at the cross. Verse number 10. As you read through verse number 10, not only do you also see, you, you see the change of the verb tense from past to present, but you also see the sovereign flavor of this passage. This passage, verse number 10, is all about God. The cross of Christ is all about God. It is God doing a work. And this is the moment of all time when God's sovereignty and God's goodness and God's glory are ultimately on display. It is at the cross of Christ that we see who God is. We see His love and we see His grace and we see His justice. And we see His holiness and we see how He feels about sin and how much He loves us. The, sovereign of God, the sovereignty of God is all through verse number 10. Feel it today as we read it. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. The Lord is at work. As I already said, I kind of slipped into this earlier. This is the relational aspect of God. God reveals several names about Himself. Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai. But Yahweh, which is this one, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the relational aspect of God. This is the promise-keeping God. This is the God like a father whose son sits in their lap and he holds him. It is the will of Yahweh to crush the servant of God. If we feel this, it is, it is tremendous. He has put him to grief. The servant of God will now experience the sorrow of sin. You see, sin causes sorrow. It does. We're all the recipient of it. Every one of us have been hurt by sin. With Jesus on the cross, He took all of that grief on Himself. And His soul makes an offering for guilt. Can I tell you what an offering does? When the Old Testament talks about an offering... There's one thing that it always has in common. And that's that an offering dies. Dies. Especially an offering made for sin. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. 
So this passage is telling us that the Lord God's plan, His perspective on the cross, is that His servant, the Messiah, would take the consequences and the grief of sin and put Him to grief. But that's not the end of the story. You see, verse number 10b goes on. And it says, He shall see His offspring. Okay, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. Offerings don't see offspring because offerings die. That does not make sense. 10b doesn't make sense because the will of the Lord was to crush him. So what this is showing us is 700 years before Jesus came to earth, God was saying, my son, my servant, Jesus Christ, would conquer death. He will come out of the ground alive and he sees his offspring. He shall prolong his days even though the will of the Lord was to crush him. It says here, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Folks, this is great news for us. We need to see the cross of Christ from God's perspective. The cross is empty, yes. And the grave is empty as well because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now as an advocate for you. 1 John 2. If you know Christ, if He is your atoning sacrifice, if the death of Christ is yours, if it has been counted as yours, the Bible says that He is an advocate at the right hand of the Father right now for you. He is a lawyer at the side of God. The accuser is there in the presence of God, accusing the brethren. The accuser is another name given to Satan. A fallen angel who's there accusing the brethren. Do you see what they do? Do you see the sin in their life? And the advocate, the Lord Jesus, steps in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I am the mediator. I am the intercessor. That's sin covered. He lives today Jesus lives today as an intercessor for our sins. That's why we're forgiven. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, if Jesus had stayed in the grave, the sins previous, maybe they could have been forgiven. But the ones thereafter, like the ones that I committed and you committed, would have no hope of forgiveness. The only hope of forgiveness today is a risen Savior at the right hand of the Father right now advocating for us. Got that one. Got that one. Got that one. Died for that one. Died for that one. That's the words of Jesus for you. And it's right here in Isaiah. Centuries before Jesus came. Two millennia ago. See, the sovereignty of God is displayed at the cross of Christ. Okay, and it goes on. It goes on. And and then what happens is now we get the perspective of this whole thing on the success of Jesus Christ. You see, in 52.13, look back up there. Okay, look up up a verse. Verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, ESV says, but many translations say shall prosper or shall have success. The, The servant of God is going to have success. He's going to prosper. And in verse number 11, it And in 10b, it it explains it. And I I want you to see that. Out of the anguish of his soul, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge 
shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now, I want you to see a couple things here, okay? First of all, I want you to see at the end of verse 10, the language here that's used is all about, it's, it's the word is posterity. It's not a word we use very much. Not prosperity, posterity. And posterity means your descendants. Your children and their children and their children's children, okay? And notice that at the end of chapter 10, the language is all about posterity. It's all about children. It says, He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You know what this is saying? Jesus is going to have children. He's going to have sons, he's going to have daughters. And they're going to prosper. And listen, Jesus has come to make you his son, his daughter. And that's how he prospers us. Through his posterity. And so this is the language of posterity that through this Messiah, he will have sons and daughters. Jesus said this in John 15. Listen to the words of Jesus. I could have called you servants. I could have called you servants. Jesus, the great sovereign God of all the universe, he said, I could, you could be my servant. And that's the word slave, by the way. I could call you slaves. But you know what he says after that? Listen to this phrase. I could call you servants, but I have called you friends. Friends. John 1.11 says that those who receive Christ, he has been given the right to be called a child of God. The posterity of Christ is found in his children, in his sons and daughters right here. And that's not the only thing. Okay? Then we get to this language of legality, quite honestly. Look at verse 11. Okay? His soul shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the rights of my servant make many, now listen to this phrase, to be accounted righteous. Now that is legal terminology. This word means, let me read to you from Vine's Expository Dictionary what that word means. Okay? That word means, that accounted righteous, it's one word. The word accounted righteous is one word. And through this death of Christ, many have experienced what I'm going to read to you. And these many are called the sons and daughters of God. Here's what happened to you because of the cross of Christ, if you've appropriated it as your own. It's to be acquitted against condemnation of an opponent is to be charged with sin, but then declared righteous. It is to be declared by a court order of law to be in the right. If you are in Christ today, this passage is promising you because God was willing to crush His own servant, He accounts you and me as righteous. Folks, this is in reality a a promise of the future that there will come a day where God will look to you and say, accounted righteous, declared, justified, finished. You have the righteousness of Christ. That's what this is saying. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's also in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a beautiful truth. It's a legal truth. It's a son-daughter truth. Recently, my, one of my children, I'll just, okay, it was my son, okay, I'm going to say he. Well, he asked if he borrow something. Need a couple dollars. I said, sure, son. Sure. Wired in the money like that. He said, thanks, Dad, in a text. Texted back. Said, son, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. Now, I'm no perfect father. That was a good moment. It's the heart of God for us. The heart of God for us. This is the cross from Christ's perspective. This is your forgiveness. This, by the way, is justification. That's what we call it in the New Testament. This declared righteous. And then finally, just to, just to wrap this Great passage of Scripture up. Man, I don't want it to end. But verse number 12, okay? And we now are going to see God's perspective on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see it here. It's very important to understand. Verse number 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now that's kind of confusing. It's like, what's going on here? These are words. This is language. We have more language. See, the language changes throughout this passage. It's so incredible. Language of posterity, language of legality, language of theology. I skipped right over that one for sake of time. But now we have the language of victory. If I say to you, they divided the spoils, what's that mean? What picture, what picture do you have in your mind? They divided the spoils of war. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. A king invaded, riding in on the horseback, okay? Swords are blaring. I don't know how you blare a sword, but you get the idea. And there's been a victory. And in the victory, there's been a great success. And land has been won. And now the king comes back, and he divides the spoils of war among his people. This passage, verse number 12, is very significant. Therefore I, and this is the Lord speaking, will divide him a portion with the many. God is now going to divide the spoils of this victory with us, with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. You see what this is saying? That in the kingdom of God, you and I, reign victorious as co-heirs with Christ. Jesus is going to come and rule as king on the universe, king on the earth of all the universe, and you and I, as His sons and daughters, reign with Him. The Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are a co-heir with Him. We are heirs with Christ. That's what this is speaking of. This is speaking of that Christ will divide His winnings, His portion, His spoil, His reign, His glory with 
us as his children. Now, you should say, why? No. Why? Because. That's the next word in the verse. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. What that means is he's, he was right there with us. He took on sin. He took on sin as a human. He took on sin. And today makes intercession for the transgressors. You and I have the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. I want to show you this in a different format. I want to show you this in a video that really impacted me. And before, before it plays, I, I want to I just tell you what I see here. I see what we've talked about all morning. I see sin. I see the consequence of sin. I see the love of the servant of God coming to earth and dying. And raising victorious to make us co-heirs with Him. Watch this video and worship our Savior. You, look at your eyes, look at them, speckled, colorful, each one unique, and I created every one of them, I created everything, the universe, and you, I gave you your personality, I made you pure, and every day I give you life I love you but something happened you cheated on me you didn't trust me you sinned you cut yourself off from me Although you're still alive, you were slowly dying. So you looked for other things. To fill the void. But nothing works. It just kills you faster. Separates us more and more. What are you searching for? destroyed, but to know me, so I became one of you, a fragile creation, 
was tempted, but I never sinned. I came to save you. You have so many sins, and they have a cost. Someone has to die. You or me. So I took on your sin. one that would destroy the curse. Isaiah saw it, spoke of a suffering servant who would come and die in our place to be crushed by the will of God. The gospel writer saw it, lived out in front of them, saw him, touched him, loved him. The apostle Paul saw it. And wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote logical expressions so we can understand what this means. Have you seen it? Have you seen who Christ is? Have you received what He has done? Have you worshipped Him as your Savior? Let's pray together.